Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to The Andy Rowe Show. Bexy Cameron was born into a sex cult deep in the British countryside. Bexie's going to tell you how when she was just nine years old, she experienced her first exorcism. At ten, she was placed on silence restriction, forced to be silent for a whole year. Then, how she escaped, leaving behind her entire family. I hope you enjoy the episode. Before we start, a massive thank you to our sponsor this week, Sons, who helped make this show happen. Gut health is vital to your general wellness, with 70% of your immune system located there. It's also linked to mental health, improved sports performance, and general well-being. So if you have gut health issues or just looking to optimize your gut health, Suns have the solution. Suns Live Bacteria Supplement is clinically proven to treat digestive troubles and improve your gut health. It's backed up by over 50 clinical trials. I've been using it and I can't speak highly enough of the difference it's made. Check it out at suns.co.uk and use the code ANDY25 to get 25 quid off your first order. Your gut will thank you and you'll also be supporting the podcast and the work we do, which is always much appreciated. Bexie Cameron, thank you very much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. Let's set the scene a little bit. Who are... The children of God? Whew, that's a big question. Um, I can tell you who they were and where they started. Children of God are, were a cult that were huge, actually, at one point. They started in Huntington Beach in California uh, by a man called David Berg, who considered himself a prophet, whereas I would consider him a predator. <laughs> so depending on your perspective of the man. Um, but he was essentially a man in his 50s who had a couple of teenage kids the time was completely ripe to start a cult. It was the 1960s, late 60s, which is when a lot of groups started. You know, multiple reasons, Vietnam War, nuclear war on the horizon. People actually thinking that the world was coming to an end, I think, gave real energy to the ideology around Armageddonist cults. Mm. And this man essentially started preaching on the beaches, um, giving out peanut butter sandwiches, and started a group that would become potentially one of the most damaging cults that has been in existence, well known for really, uh, what's the word? I was going to say spicy beliefs, but I think that kind of <laughs> kind of dumbs it down. They, they believed a lot of things, but I think the things they're well known for uh, was the fact that they exploited the women within the cult. They had a practice called flirty fishing, which was basically let's turn all the mums into prostitutes. Uh, to support the communes. Um, How did that support communes? Well, because they'd go out into nightclubs and bars and they would essentially, they they were known as hookers for Jesus. Um, And they would go out and they would preach the word of God and they would sleep with men for money. So they would support the communes by doing that. And it went on for quite some time. It started in 1974 and ended in the kind of mid-80s. It ended because they kept getting outlawed in in different countries. 
not because David Berg wanted to end it. But is it, it's interesting though because you know what the, the the rapidity with which somebody like David Berg can go from preaching on a beach about Armageddon, which is something that you think you can believe in, and I personally would like to believe the majority of people who join the Children of God were doing it with a good purpose mm. in mind. You know, they were teenagers, a lot of them. My, my parents were like 19, 20 when they joined. Um, it was like the hippie movement. The hippie right? movement. I mean, the Jesus movement was massive at that time. Yeah. Jesus freaks, etc. It was a huge, huge thing. It wasn't unusual to be joining in, a, you know, an ideological group. Um, but what is unusual is to turn something which is about the end of the world and full of like hippies that are reverent and, you know, want to start a revolution and then start capitalizing on it. So turning them into prostitutes and then exploiting the children, which, you know, they, they gave birth to, which was another big thing. So David Berg is also well known for his, his theories or beliefs around what he called child bride, which is, you know, God's only law is love. And if you love, if you do something in love, then you, it, then it's allowed, aka, in his words, you could marry your children. So essentially it started out as something which we'd like to think is good, but ended up as something extremely toxic and how that kind of came to pass for me was my parents mm. yeah how the hell did your parents end up because that's something that people look at a cult and go like what sort of person gets sucked into that like that's it just seems so obvious that a cult looks like a bad news yeah but how did, what were the circumstances that led your parents to join so here's the thing i think at that point we hadn't had all the cults are bad news um kind of media backlash that happened which happened i think a bit later on in the 80s and 90s but obviously still people didn't think that they were the best news especially not traditional kind of like parents my grandparents for example when my mom joined you know that that, that was like a bereavement to them they lost their daughter, their only daughter. Um, but to answer your question, what kind of people join cults? I mean, what is interesting for me, especially having been someone who grew up in one, born in one, to do the research now and see who joins cults, it tends to be middle-class, well-educated people, um, which I think is surprising because yeah. most of us want to believe it's the vulnerable or you know somebody that's like you know has addiction problems or alcohol problems or something like that. That, ha that puts them in that vulnerable state of mind that they'll just believe anything. But actually, it's people who come from kind of semi-conformist backgrounds that want something that gives them something else, but still a construct within which to live. Because cults do give you a kind of construct. They give you purpose. They give you, you know, a schedule, all of those things. But you just have to give up your identity and the ties mm. to your friends, your family, and who you were before to receive it. So... Can you talk me through the situation, how your mum joined? Yes, yeah. I can. So my mom was studying to be a psychologist. She was actually in the same university as my dad. They had been on a couple of dates, but essentially what I can glean from the stories is she thought he was a bit of a twat, um, which he is. And my dad had gone to London because a friend of his from the same university had taken his toolkit. And so he went to retrieve his toolkit and didn't come back. And my mom had heard around university that my dad had joined a cult. And her being quite a good goody-two-shoes, good Christian girl, had heard about cults and how damaging they were, decided to go and rescue him. Cut to her joining almost five hours, like she says, that her own words, within five hours of, of going to the Bromley factory, which was a big, big commune they had. They took over this massive factory. And, you know, I look at pictures of that time period and it's like, like really cool looking young people I mean like 20 21 years old wearing these cool hippie outfits in an industrial looking factory all like you know 
off their nut on Jesus. And, you know, you can almost look at that and think, oh, actually, do you know what? That looks quite, I mean, it's not exactly my bag, but it doesn't look that. It almost sounds like Woodstock or yeah, exactly. Glastonbury or something. And it's not that far removed. And it is from the same time period. And it is kind of, they did use the same vernacular of like heavy and right on and all that kind of stuff yeah. and like dropping out and all the rest of this. And everyone's minds were primed by things like, you know, hallucinogenics and the political landscape. So, yeah, she joined within five hours and it, it baffles me. Shit, that's quick. It, yeah, it baffles me to think that, like, I think the conversion rates are pretty quick within groups. And for my mum, that's a decision that lasts until this day. I mean, she's still in it. My dad is still in it. You know, they had 12 children within this group. You know, they built their entire lives around this group, whether they regret it or not whether they still believe it or not, it's almost like it's too late for them to back out. Mm. You know, this is this is entirety of their lives. It's almost like a sunken cost. Exactly. Now it's- exactly. Great way of putting it. When you were there, so you grew up there, what was it that they told you that your purpose was? Like, Oh, we're getting into X-Men territory, aren't we? So this is, again, I, it, it does sound so silly. <laughs> again, an understatement. But we were raised, because we were in an Armageddonist cult, with a twist, obviously, all the kind of sexual beliefs are their, are their very real twist. We were raised to believe that we were, we children especially, were, the, were meant to be the soldiers for the end time wars. So we were raised as martyrs. We were raised to think that, I mean, I was told I was never going to make it past 14 years old, that I would have superpowers, which is, you know, like lasers coming out. My, I mean, this stuff, I don't, recommend that anyone looks up anything from the children of God because you will read and see things that you cannot unsee but all of this stuff exists online like pretty much everything that David Berg ever wrote so if you did ever want to see what it, what we were supposed to grow up into the comic books that they created for us to read as children t- depicting what we were going to have as superpowers all exist online mm. the lasers the, the you know the, the the breathing of fire all of this stuff which now when I look back on it, it sounds comically ridiculous but for me it was a it was my childhood that's what I believed I mean when we would go out do you know like if we had like downtime we would play you know end time wars that was our you know and which is probably not that different to most kids yeah, it's playing standard. It. Yeah, it's pretty just standard thinking, isn't it like I, I'm pretty sure I thought I was going to be an x-man at one well, this point this is it and but but I was told I was going to be an x-man so you can imagine what it's like to you know hit 14 and um, instead of superpowers, you get a period. I mean, it's absolutely devastating. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Gutting. Shit. <laughs> it's not what I was told. That's rubbish. <laughs> this, this wasn't the deal. No. There was no comic book for this. From the one hand, like, obviously, it's it's funny. And I think that that's something that me and, and the bro- my brothers and sisters and the kids that I've grown up with, we all have quite a dark sense of humor about how we grew up. Because, you know, trauma is you know, sometimes does come out as mm. humor is a, they're t- very closely related in my book. Um, but there is the serious side to this, which is if you're grown up, if you're growing up to be a martyr, then um, you don't need to be educated. You don't need right. contact with the outside world. You don't need any of those things because you're never going to be an adult. And you are raised with the idea like you know, my, it was, it, I, I was born to die in a way and that um that has huge effect like effects on you even once you're out it had a massive effects on me like the I I didn't even realize until I was in my mid-20s that I existed with this ticking clock over me that I didn't understand 
I did it, you know, five things at once all the time. I was always early for absolutely everything. Like, you know, and that sounds brilliant, but like the the speed with which I would do things, the frenetic energy that I just had imbibed in me yeah. was from this ticking clock that I grew up with. Which, just an enthusiasm for life that you need to get everything done now. That, exactly that. And it's like actually slow down. Or, you know, maybe there is something to be said for the positive side of that, which is constantly, you know, trying to like you living every day as if it's your last in some ways mm. but the negative side to that is the is the kind of fear side of that which i think i kind of had to start unpicking in my 30s and and as a process of of, of doing this book as well is kind of unpicking like what were all those mental things that we were we were taught and mm. what ramifications have they had and and you know what's still kind of clinging on to me as well which yeah. is Are all your brothers and sisters out now yes that's the kind of like really joyful part of this is that you know a when we were in it to when we were in it together we were each other's lifelines we were the pack that kept each other safe and i think that you know yeah. there's some you know darker sides that you read about in the book which is you know us constantly watching out for what we called watch outs which were essentially if you're a grown up a pedophile but we, you know, we didn't know that word for them. We just knew that they, they were called watch yeah, outs. They were called watch outs because you had to watch well, there out. There are a lot of there. pedophiles in there. A lot because I think if you're if you're one of your core beliefs is that you can, you know, do what you want with children and you can exploit children both, you know, mentally, physically, and sexually, which was David Berg's kind of, you know, mo. What type of people is that going to attract, and what type of people is it going to retain as well? Because when mm. he came out with this um, this idea. It's so hard to choose your words around something which is such a fucked up belief like mm. that and call it an idea, but I, yeah, a fucked up belief. I found out later again when I was doing my research into this book and was that a third of the people left overnight when he came out with this idea, Child Bride. Right. Because they were just like, no, that's too much. And that, that to me is really interesting as well because, you know, we think about conditioning and we think about how, you know, brainwashing and all that stuff. And clearly there was still a sense of free will with a lot of people. I know a guy who lived in David Berg's house as a four or five-year-old and his mother was like one of the right-hand women of David Berg. And the day that David Berg came out with this Child Bride idea, she got her kids in the night and she left. And it's like kudos to her. But the unfortunate thing for, you know, people like myself and, you know, some of the other kids that are mentioned in the book, our parents didn't do that. Mm. They were maybe too embedded or just decided what they were going to believe and what they didn't. They revisioned it, whatever. But yeah, I find that kind of interesting that's, that there are certain points when certain people left and other people didn't. There's a story about a guy called Jude in your book. Can you tell me about him? Because oh, it links in kind of nicely to what you're talking yeah, about. I mean, and- yeah, Jude. Ugh. Jude, as a kid, I would have described him to you as my nemesis. You know, because I think as a kid, I thought I, I had a bit more power than when looking back. Looking back, I see a scrawny child with like mm. missing teeth. But at the time, I saw him as something to be fought and my nemesis. And this guy was a real piece of shit. Um, he basically was one of the leaders of our homes who decided that it was one of he 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 was a watch out in some ways, but he was mainly physically really abusive, and he used to beat the crap out of kids, and you could tell that he enjoyed it. And this is kind of one of the I think it's one of the chapters of my book, isn't it, where we go into quite some detail yeah. about me thinking that he's my nemesis and the kind of you know almost fights that I in my mind I think we're having, but actually you know he's just a a real piece of work who was a leader in the group and really took great pleasure in beating up children and being a proper like 
A proper arsehole. I mean, I, th- yeah. He's- Here's a real piece of shit. Yeah, he, he, <laughs> a real um, piece of shit. He did that. He did a speech. You were ten at the time, mm. and there were teenagers in there as well. Which still not okay. Yeah. And he did that speech about sex. So this is so the 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 mo letters that I have in the book, and mo letters is what what Moses David called his own preachings. So. So, so Moses David Moses David, David yeah, Berg. David Berg. And yeah. he, sorry, it is quite convoluted, isn't it? But Moses David is is David Berg. He's got a lot of names. He's got a lot of names. He's the prophet. He's the prophet. He's the king. He's like, he basically, he was a, a messiah of sorts. As I say, I always call him a predator more than a prophet. But he would bring out Mo letters, his own writings, two or three times a week. I mean, the man was prolific. We would read everything that he had to say. We would read about his dreams. We would even read about him taking a shit. I mean, this genuinely, all of this stuff exists online. And again, I do not suggest that you look at it. But I think that when you grow up in something that bizarre, I have to keep saying things like that because I have to keep reminding myself that this actually did yeah. happen and that it can be proven because it just sounds ridiculous. You know, it's like yeah. there's so much gaslighting going on that it's like I have to kind of keep referring back to it. But basically, this guy... Jude, the kind of moment you're talking about, he talks about the sex and rape and a, and a girl being um, raped in a, in a paddy wagon, which is a, I think it's an American term for a police van, mm. and asks all of us girls who are children and teenagers, you know, what we would have done in the same situation. Would we have used this gang rape as a time to uh, show the Lord's love? Which I, again, as I say, it's just, it's just hor- horrific. But what, what is interesting is like, I knew that these things existed, but when I was doing the research for the book, I found these Mo letters, these David Berg letters. So mm-hmm. what you're reading in the book is verbatim. So not like, I, I remembered that. So it's I, not your memory. It's not my it's your memory. I, I you remembered remember it. Yeah. And then I was like, I'm going to find it verbatim. So what you read, anything that's in, that, in my book that is Moses David within a lecture or with anything else is absolutely verbatim what he said. I cut and paste it and put it in because I was like, I, there's no reason for me to make this up because the original source is so fucked. It's so fucked. Yeah, it's, not, it's not like they were misunderstood no, people. The, yeah. The, yeah so like so yeah so I but I did that with a sense of purposefulness because I was like I couldn't make this up so I will put it in directly from the source so everything he said all the questions that Jude asks within that scene if you like which is my childhood but it's easier to say scene is absolutely verbatim from that Mo letter was it around this time that they performed an exorcism on you Jude was the man that performed my exorcism on me um, which was a little bit before then, so I, I think I just had my ninth birthday and I got caught for lying and passing notes and several other things which children do of all ages, but obviously within within something which kind of looks and feels a little bit like The Handmaid's Tale, which is the... I know it's, exactly. it's, it's a terrible thing to use a piece of pop culture to kind of describe something else, but one of the things I quite like about Margaret Atwood and The Handmaid's Tale is that she didn't really make anything up to create that series, to create those books, did she? It was all... Mm. Everything's based on stuff that's actually happened that people have done to women or people have done to other people. Yeah. It's all real. And... When I watch that, it's the closest thing that I can actually get to conjuring up the feelings of what it was like to be in this group. Things like the vernacular, you know how they say things like under his eye and apologies if you haven't watched it, but we had those types of, we had our own vernacular. We had, you know, acronyms that we used on a daily basis. We had all of that stuff that made us a separate world with, within this world. But the, the exorcism with Jude was me being a nine-year-old and the entire community getting together and... I didn't do anything like as kind of dramatic as, you know, what 
Catholics might do with the smoke and the swinging pots and all that kind of stuff and the things you see in movies. But it still definitely was everyone with their hands all over my body casting out my casting out my demons. And again, that's and also they changed my name to Rebecca the Deceiver. Um, which sounds kind of cool. That's something that like, I, that's kind of like a, a, almost like a name that I'd like give my niece yeah, when she yeah, was being naughty yeah, just for yeah. a bit of fun. But it's yeah, like, Rebecca the Deceiver. It's like it sounds kind of grand, and maybe I should be trotting around on a horse, but I really wasn't. Um, and also, again, like the serious side of doing something like labeling kids, especially as things like having demons. I mean, for me, the kind of repercussions of that was and and I think this is why I had you know the start of the book when I'm like I'm, when I'm 27 years old and I can't sleep and I'm having nightmares and I'm drinking loads and I'm taking drugs and all the rest of that stuff I think at the core of all of that there was something inside me that was still thinking that I was actually underneath all the identities that I'd given myself my new hair my new name my new accent because I didn't grow up with this one underneath all of that I think I still had this innate wondering or feeling am I evil because there were points when I thought that I that I might be and I think if you are if you have everyone in your community everyone that you know turn around and tell you that you are and that you're this deceiver I think that it can you know labeling attaches yeah Yeah. it it, it attaches itself to you Mm. and it's definitely a lesson on what not to do with your kids at the very least yeah the whole time you're talking about everything that goes on even through the book I'm always thinking about your parents like where the fuck are they? Like, yeah. what, what's going on? Yeah. But we'll get to that like, later okay. on as well because you, you you got a little bit of closure almost. Mm-hmm. Also around 10 years old, you were sent, you were put on silent. Yeah. Like, yeah. you were, tell us what that is. Okay. And and what why that happened. Yeah, okay. So, I'll give Rebecca you... Rebecca the Deceiver. Yeah. <laughs> the truth, please. I'll give you the... Um, give you a bit of context around it as well. Um, not that any of this is an excuse, but as I was saying to you earlier, you know, we were being raised to be the end time soldiers and end, like end time martyrs. And there was a, re- a rebellion that was happening within the children of God. The teenagers, they were starting to question like, what the fuck is going on? Like we were separate, but you know, we'd also seen the world and we'd also, we knew that it existed and, you know, people had had the, you know, occasional ins and outs of it and like, you know, taken out on missions to see this and that and, you know, Bible bashing and stuff like that. So we knew that all the world existed, but we just kept being told that we were the chosen ones and that, you know, we were so incredibly lucky to be in the environment that we're in and people started to question it. And I think that, remember at that time that the children of God were in a hundred countries, they were massive. And the teenagers started to outnumber the adults because adults had so many kids, like mm. my family, massive ratio difference there. These kids were rebelling and the adults were like, fuck, what are we going to do? Instead of listening to them and asking them like what they could do to make maybe they can living conditions better or like treating them like people, they decided to clamp down. So they created what they called Victor camps, teenage, like where where we, the rotten apples, the ones who were naughty, and obviously because at that point I'd already had an exorcism, already was like being singled out by Jude. I was put into this Victor camp, teenage camp, training camp to make us, a, make us better soldiers. The first thing they did was put me on sinus restriction. And what that means is, oh, I had to wear a, sign around my neck that I had to write myself I mean that's really rubbing oil and like rubbing salt in the wound isn't it to Mm. actually have to write your own sign saying I'm on sign restriction please do not talk to me I wasn't allowed to talk to anyone I wasn't allowed to look anyone in the eye I wasn't allowed to laugh at anything that had happened as in any form of communication no hand signals and when I walked into a room people looked down so essentially 
what that means is I was invisible and I was invisible within the commune of like a hundred people. So that is even more confusing than just like, you know, being alone. And, you know, again, I, I keep, I keep trying to bring it back to like bigger pictures of like regular children or regular, no one's regular, I'm sure. But this idea that, you know, I'm sure there's loads of people who've gone through childhood where they've had moments of feeling like that or being at school where they've been completely invisible and they felt completely alone and they're in a hugely crowded room. And I think that exists even for adults. So I think that there are, themes within the book and within this story that are universal even though you might look at the fact this is that on the extreme end of it this isn't a batshit you know mm. end of like what the fuck yeah, <laughs> type yeah, yeah. territory because you're like oh my god like you were in a hang on you're in a teenage training camp to make you a martyr for the end time within a cult but on the british countryside but you had an american accent but you weren't allowed to talk i mean all of it just sounds ridiculous and how long weren't you allowed to talk for i wasn't allowed to talk for 11 months and actually, and obviously, you know, being a bit flippant about it, but they never took me off sign of restriction. So we, you know, shouldn't be talking now. He's <laughs> <laughs> well, certainly making up for yeah, it. I know, exactly. <laughs> I know, nonstop ever since. But no, they. Ne- but you know, it was it was eleven months, and and what ended up happening was I we moved commune is what ended up happening. We moved to a different home, as they called it, and in this home there was a girl my age who had been on sign restriction for a year herself. And she was on it because she had fallen down a flight of stairs and broken a collarbone. So they took that as a sign from God that something was wrong with her. And they asked me and her to share a bed. And as I climbed into the bed that night, she looked at me like through the darkness and just went, hey. And what I admire about that moment and what still makes me feel quite emotional thinking about it is in a sea of other people and other, you know, kids and who wouldn't, wouldn't have dared to kind of look at me or talk to me, she did. And we started talking in private and, you know, in the nights mainly. And, and she became my first real friend. And she's still my best friend now. Maria? Maria, yeah. She's a ledge. <laughs> she's an absolute ledge. She's a very, very good character yeah, in your book. Yeah, she's... A, she's still like she's still my wrestler now she's hard as fucking nails yeah. <laughs> she's so strong you had to scrap her once though didn't yeah, you? You yeah, yeah, her. yeah I had to fight her which is again another bizarre story I, so what ended up happening was one of the one of the leaders who was quite young he was a teenage leader ended up seeing that we Eli. had yeah Eli saw that we'd had a friendship and friendships aren't really allowed in the group yeah. so we ended up having a kind of a gladiator-esque like fight with all the kids watching and it was quite brutal and you know it was this wasn't something that they preached so it wasn't like like Moses David didn't come up with this but if you train a bunch of kids to be leaders and then give them like free reign to do whatever they want and be as brutal as possible especially in the the environment we were raised in Mm. so like you know I don't blame him now looking back because he was just a kid as well but you know the stuff that ended up happening because of the fact that kids were being raised in brutal environments you know was was pretty hardcore, to say the least. Mm. And when you were in the Victor program, the beatings like were horrific, weren't they? Because mm-hmm. some of the tools they used, they were quite inventive. Yeah, I think again, it was by it's, it's an awful phrase, but it you know they wanted to make us these better soldiers by any and all means possible, and that really meant like it wasn't a case of what method; it was just use whichever method you want at any time mm. you want, and that included like people just coming up with like creative and inventive ways to kind of 
to punish us essentially and that was everything from chopping boards with like holes in them to switches and and beyond and you know it, everyone had their all the leaders had their own kind of like mark that they would leave and that's one of those things that you know when you're when you grow up in a scenario like that those are the things you remember is like the shape you know, it sounds really detailed and grotesque but you know like when I was writing the book and I was like what are the things that I actually remember about that time period it's like I remember the shape of bruises and you know that that sounds super dark but it's like we all kind of it's almost like having a tag system there was mm. a point where they blindfolded us children be, when we they would beat us because they were like oh you're carrying a grudge against the person that's beat you and we were all like you know obviously not saying it amongst ourselves because we weren't allowed to speak but it was just like you're you're not hiding anything because we all know what your mark is you know just stuff oh, like you that would know who we was know exactly you. who done it because you they all had their own specific thing they did and i know that sounds probably really kind of grotesque to kind yeah. of hear and but but it was just it's things that's that when you're kind of going back in time and thinking like, what are the things that really stood out? It was stuff like that. And whenever they did give you a beating, they they always said, this is hurting us. Yeah. Or it's hurting it, you. Yeah. And do you believe that I love you? And you'd have to nod and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Which, which in itself, I mean, I didn't even get into this in great detail, but just talking about it now, think about how fucked up that is from the perspective of how you start to misconstrue love. Because if someone's mm. saying I love you, but just before they give you a beating, and I know that that happens not just in within cults, it happens, you know, in in lots of different relationships and etc. The conflicting messages that you're getting about love and what you might seek out as relationships afterwards. Just what you think a relationship is, like yeah. it's, yeah. <sighs> I mean, and, it, and, and you know, I, I don't go into this in great detail, but, you know, my first, the, the first thing that ended up happening to me when I left, because I was so vulnerable and I was like 15, was falling into what I thought was a relationship, but with somebody who was a predator because it's such familiar territory. For me. Really? Yeah, yeah. I thought it was a relationship, but I was 15 and he was 32. That's not a relationship. No. You know, and he was, again, a real piece of shit. But for me, it was so such a familiar kind of it would you know, almost feel like it was uh, it feels normal yeah. you know it, it feel it felt it felt normal one of the first sort of glimpses that you got into people from the outside world what did you, what do you call them the, what's the term systemites 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 so we're systemites yeah that's you andy yeah i'm a systemite <laughs> one of the first systemites you met was uh someone from the guardian newspaper oh yes this i'm glad you asked me about this because it takes a bit of a nicer tone doesn't it <laughs> yeah well let's talk about the lead up to that and then talk about the interview how did the Guardian newspaper get into your cult? We'd been in hiding for years for obvious reasons, prostitution, child abuse, etc. To and name a few, yeah. Yeah, just yeah. to name a few. I mean, and when I say we've been in hiding, I think you, you see this in, I think it's like chapter three or something where like we start off the chapter with actually being on the run, which is such a strong memory for me. Like the times where we, we had something called a flea bag that was constantly packed, that had a it was essentials in it and if it was the police or the reporters on our front door and we knew that it was them and not one of us because systemites ring once children of god ring three times so we had codes that were there to protect us against right. the system so if it was one ring and we didn't know who it was and if you saw that it was like either the police or whatever you would literally grab your flea bag and you'd be in the van and that would be it and we'd go underground sometimes for like you'd leave the cult you'd we would just away. leave the commune in, in vans and we would like split up and we would just that that commune would be considered to be burned and it would be done and we did that about three times in the space of a year and it's not a sustainable way to live you know because cults cost money yeah. <laughs> and you know and also it's just not sustainable to like all of a sudden be on a campsite in the winter for like six months. Although 
you know, and I, you'll know this from reading the book that, that, that like when we went underground that time, it was just my family and we were on this campsite in Wales. It was one of the happiest kind of memories of my life. We were out of the communes, we were out of the regime and I saw it as like being on a holiday camp almost. Mm. Um, anyway, the point being that we'd been on the run for so long and now they were like, okay, we can't run anymore. This isn't sustainable. We're going to have to let somebody in to the home. Um, and they created a kind of front, almost like a, like a facade of the children of God. They got a couple of families together that were semi-normal. My parents, for example, in you know British accents, they both come across as quite well-educated. We were all full brothers and sisters, which is quite unusual within a group like that. We looked the same, which is a good front to put in front of mm. people, rather than you know what we called Jesus babies, which is a whole other thing. And so we were created a, a kind of a fake version of a cult <laughs> for a media person to come into, where the kids were media trained, where the house didn't look like any other cult that I'd been to, and my mum and dad were the face of it. And they were basically the PR for the children of God. That, and this was the first time that this had happened. And I was media trained to answer questions. And we allowed for the first time ever a reporter into the gates of the children of God. It was a really big day for all of us. And a big day for him, I think, as well. Because, you know, at that point, the children of God were in the papers as the sexually deviant you know, group and they'd been in the news of the world and they were blowing up everywhere, um, with, with understandably so. And he came and he stayed with us for three days. And when he did, he sat me down and I think I would have been about 11 and a half, like nearly 12, around that age. One of his first questions to me was, um, you know, what do you want to be when you grow up? Which is really simple as a question and probably something... X-Men. <laughs> yeah. Well, probably something that every child gets asked at some point, you know, well, in the Western world anyway. But when he did ask me this, it was like the this whole world of possibilities opened up. And it sounds ridiculous to say that a child of that age could have an epiphany. But really, for me, that's how it felt. Because I, it was my first kind of crack in the wall of, hang on a second... Maybe I can grow up. Maybe there is a life for me outside of this one that mm. I've had predestined, you know, maybe. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Maybe I'm not going to die as a 14-year-old. Maybe there is somewhere else that I can exist. And maybe this man who didn't look like he was lying was telling the truth. Because I was trying to find, like, was he, was he, was it a joke? Like, what was... But, you know, there was nothing but good intentions beaming off this man. 
because he was a journalist and because I at that point knew only two careers, one was cult leader and the other one was journalist, I said, I want to be like you. I want to be a journalist. Which, if you think about it now, is quite weird because he was the... Um, and I never thought about this when I actually started my journey around like into the underbelly of cults, like the 10 cults that I joined. But when I think about it now, when I think about that question, it does... It is quite weird to think that he was a man who was the religious correspondent for The Guardian at that time. And his kind of major job was doing this, like questioning kids in religious communities and groups and stuff. And what I ended up doing was joining 10 myself and essentially asking a lot of the same questions that he asked me at that mm. point. You know, but but now and in cults today, which I think is quite a, a weird kind of cycle of events, isn't it? Yeah, it's massively, how, mm. massively weird how everything's sort of come around again for mm. you. And after that interview with The Guardian, and there was other media interviews and things, and you kind of came across a whole cache of newspaper clippings and things in the commune, didn't you? Yes, yeah, so this and- is this is when I was about 13, when I had my really big kind of like, I, I don't know, like a, a real, not, not, it's not a wake-up call because I'd already... I already had the feelings of rebellion myself. By this point, Maria, who was my, my my best friend at the time, had already been kicked out of the group. I was extremely alone, extremely like going through what I was probably a depression at that age. And I found in the office, my parents had a, a book, as you say, a cache of all these newspaper clippings that we'd been involved in over the last three, four years because the press had been like written about us so much because kids had been taken away. We'd been involved in a court case. There were like 900 children taken away from the Children of God in synchronized rays that happened like Barcelona, in Argentina, in Paris, like all over the shop. We were getting hit by the police and social services and what have you. So you're starting to get an idea of how the world views the Children of God that you had never seen before. Yeah, so I'd only heard from, you know, the inside perspective on outside the systemites the evilness the this the that mm. and now i'm reading these articles which again the ones that you the ones that i read and the ones that i remembered i looked up now when i was doing my research for the book and found them so everything that you read in that chapter is is verbatim again from the articles that i read at that time mm. and there's a picture that i describe within that chapter where i talk about we as a group going on the demonstration standing outside of the Argentine embassy doing a demonstration saying let our children go because they'd just taken away like 400 kids from the children of God and I wrote that photograph from memory because I remember looking at it and seeing myself in that picture printed in the newspaper holding a sign saying let our children go and I remember thinking all I wanted to do at that point was to be let go as a child but when I got interviewed by the Times, like uh, when the book came out, they found that photograph in the ar- archives. Awesome. The one that I'd written from memory, the outfit and everything. And they printed it. And I remember like, like seeing it in the paper now, I was like, oh my God, like holding that sign, being that tiny. I'm so small. And like at the time, because we were, you know, we were, we were, we were so adult, you know, we, we were running kitchens and nurseries age 10, 11, you know, we were, we were the worker bees that hold the communes together. I remember thinking I was an adult. And then you look at something like that, like a photograph from the newspaper. And it, again, it validates the experience of mm. something which is so fantastical that I, I, I feel often like I'm recounting a movie to you rather than telling you about my childhood and then there are things like that where I can go look it's here it is I'm not Rebecca the Deceiver I promise <laughs> like <laughs> there she is exactly as yeah. I remember and it's yeah but I was getting that experience 
of almost like being gaslit your entire life and then you read these newspaper articles as a 13 year old and you see what everyone thinks of you sex cult girls predator pedophile this that and the other like yeah. massive articles that, that were really you know really went into the explanation of how truly fucked our group was and it, having that experience was bananas it must have been crazy to like because you would have had little thoughts in your head sometimes thinking fuck is this right is yeah, this okay yeah but then like and when you started to notice that and or when you started to have this sort of epiphany that maybe it's you know this is how the world views us it was around that same time that there were the village or the town next to you or the, the people in the community, you were kind of having small interactions with some boys that would like be shouting what they were reading in the papers about yeah, you guys. Yeah, so this was when we would go out, and this is just before that moment, was when me and Maria would like, we ran the kitchens together and we would like run out to the barns to get, you know, big bags of meat to drag back into the house. It's as feral as it sounds, it was as feral as it sounds dressed in like baggy sock type of jumpers and old leggings and tattered plimsolls and just looking like cult kids essentially and then there would be these teenagers who'd read all these these things about us which were you know were true in the papers sitting at the gates of the cult as you would imagine if you were in a village in somewhere like in you know in the middle of nowhere and there was a cult in your village i mean i would be there every day i mean i'm still banging on the doors of cults (laughs) and i grew up in one so i understand the obsession with them but they would sit there getting high you know smoking weed doing poppers whatever all the cool shit they did back in the day and um, when we would come out, they would just be like, oi, sex cult girl. And we'd be like, us? And, you know, it was a tag that kind of stuck with us for, for quite some time. But And we'd just be looking across at them being like, oh, my God, look at their cool jackets. And are we sex cult girls? And they'd be like, give us a blowjob and all this kind of stuff. And it's like, but that was the world we grew up in. And, it, you know, it, it that yeah. So, so, yeah, it's an interesting, interesting one. And you made friends with a guy. Yes. One of them, Rafa. Rafa, yeah. Um. He was a kid from the village who I started hanging about with, who started ha- trying to basically help me plan my escape. Yet this guy came from nowhere other than empathy and compassion and a you know, really loving, wonderful um, person who, again, became a lifeline for me, started teaching me swear words and, you know... Um, handy when you're trying to escape. Super handy, really handy. Um, you know, everything from like... I mean, he let me listen to Rage Against the Machine for the first time in his car. Fuck that, and that, you wouldn't have heard music much. Uh, that, that's a pretty steep learning curve going straight into Rage honestly, Against the Machine. Prodigy and Rage Against the Machine were the first like two things he let me listen to. And th- I'm considering the fact that I grew up in a group that didn't allow any music outside of the stuff that we yeah. made ourselves. So I'm talking plinky plonky bullshit on an acoustic guitar was what we had, like awful. Straight I into still, rage off the back yeah, of plinky plonky yeah, bullshit. Yeah, straight into rage and just being sitting in his Ford Escort like 100 metres away from my cult listening to Rage Against Machine. Like I think about it now and it's like, it's almost worth not having music up until that point so that you just get... You get that moment. <laughs> you get that moment. And like even things like when I left, having... The first time that I stood next to a speaker and listened to a dance track pulsating through my body and being like, holy fuck. Like, everything that I did when I got out was incredible. I mean, obviously there was all the horrible bits of trying to understand what the world was and how how does money work and having to work illegally because I was so young and, you know, being homeless for the first, like, bit after I left and... And then there was the exciting bits, like, I'm not going to die in the end time. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? And also, wow, here's, here's, here's music, here's drugs, here's alcohol, here's, uh, you know, me being a teenager with no one telling me what to do. 
and all of the wonderful and terrifying things that that brought with it. But um, yeah. Going back to the Rafa helping you plan the escape, mm. uh, your dad found out though, didn't he? Yeah, my dad. What uh, happened? Yeah, my dad and uh, my dad and mum found out, and it was just through ridiculous, um, ridiculous. Uh, you know, being a teenager and just not planning things properly, even though I really thought I had. But essentially, um, what happened was the best way to describe it is is it's overused, but Big Brother essentially. Everyone in their home got together who was over the age of eighteen. They called a full meeting about me. They discovered that I was um, planning this escape, which is basically working in a bar, trying to earn some money so that I could actually save to go. Because had you been working in a bar? So yeah, because basically, oh, Raffer had taken, you to had taken me to the bar to work, and he was bringing me back, and he was basically because what I'd seen happen, and again, this is a little bit dark, but like you know, this whole episode should come with a trigger warning anyway. But like most of the kids I grew up with, but we grew we grew up in a world where prostitution was normalized when we were children. We grew up in a world where women were considered to be second rate and sexual objects and all the rest of it. And most of us grew up without an education. So what happens when you start to leave and you have nothing to fall back on most of the kids that you know girls I grew up with ended up you know in some sort of like sex work and if you choose that and it's your place for empowerment that's great but if you're a teenager and you have absolutely zero options on your plate and you end up doing that because otherwise you cannot survive it's a completely different story from like mm. someone being like choosing it as a profession and and also we were vulnerable teenagers, you know, and so I'd seen this happen. That was the kind of the example that I had of girls leaving and I didn't want that to be me. So we started, you know, he helped me get this part time job and I was earning a bit of money because my plan was when I was 16, I was going to walk out the doors of my own volition. That was my plan. I was going to have saved up. We had this idea of how much money I needed not a lot of money. It was like five, six hundred pounds. That's what I needed to get out. And so I was saving towards that and it was going to be around the time of my 16th birthday, I'd have the money and I could just leave. And it was like this empowered, head held high thing that I really craved, like a choice. And instead what happened was I got caught in between and then they pulled, called this meeting and like in Big Brother, they um, decided to vote on whether I could stay or go because was I too big of, an, of a danger being within the house? Would I influence other people? Was I too far gone? Was I again too evil to stay? And they unanimously voted that I should Go. Your parents are part of that vote. My parents well, are part yeah. of that vote, yeah. and you know, I, I I do talk about it in flippant terms of Big Brother and stuff like that. But again, like if you have, you are shunned by your entire community, whether you hated them or not. It's like you know when you got like a, a shit boyfriend or girlfriend, and you're like, I'm gonna break up with them, and then they pip you to the post, and you're devastated because you were like, oh god, right, right. <laughs> yeah. And they were saying yeah. that you had to go, yeah. and you're like, fuck, I want to go anyway. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah but and, but I wanted to go on my own terms, and I yeah. wanted it to be a choice and all this kind of stuff. But um, it didn't work out that way. And also, I knew that it would be much more difficult for me as a 15 year old being out in the world. You know, I wasn't of legal age, um, and how would I get a job and all those other things? And I just wasn't mentally prepared for it as much as I would have liked to have been. So it came with this whole he own problems and dramas and all the rest of it. But yeah, as far as like this kid in the village and Rafa and the things that he tried to do to help me, um, that again, yeah, it was a moment, a real moment of grace. I shut down completely when that happened. And I shut down from him and I shut down from my parents and I shut down from the group. And I just went into pure survival mode. Mm. Like, how do I make it and what have you and 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 not kind of get into what some of the other people I knew had left had got into so you did escape though didn't you yeah can you talk me through that day yeah I mean well 
I kind of we call it an escape, but it wasn't. It was you know it was an excommunication, which was a form of escape. But you know it, that was the day that I ended up in the kind of the the train station, you know, an hour away from where my commune had been, and I was all of a sudden the city centre, and you know I had, I did essentially have this you know incredible world all around me, and obviously we know that the story turns out you know super well, and but yeah, it was terrifying as as much as it was exciting. Did you just run out of the gates? And no. all the way, or how did you get out of the gates? No, no, I, no, I, I mean, it, it does sound kind of more dramatic than it is in a way, because it was like, it was just a case of being ejected. So like, pack your bags, you're done. Right, so they, done. so you yeah. actually yeah. take yeah, the train yeah, station yeah, yeah, yeah. To, to be moved to another yeah. cult, to another location. To another location, and, yeah. For the cult, yeah. And then that's when the, the bad boyfriend rocks yeah, up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's when it kind of takes a, takes a different turn, which is mm. unfortunate. But as we know... We can skip the part about yeah, the bad boyfriend. He sounds like a dick as well. He's a fucking like. piece of work. <laughs> um, but no, the, I mean, we clearly we know that the story turns out well, but it was a yeah. long time between... I mean, imagine being 15 and having an American accent and having this, like, fucked up sense of ideas of what the world is like. And all of a sudden, you have to unlearn everything that you've learned and you have to start trying to assimilate into the world around you. I didn't know how to act, how to talk. I didn't know what to wear. You know, I would turn up to work wearing what essentially was a sports bra because I had no fucking idea what I was doing. I stood out like a sore thumb and I had to invent what my... Like, now I can be honest about my childhood. Now I can be, you know, because now I'm out of it. But at that time, you know, two or three days out of it, you have to invent like, oh, my dad's an ambassador. That's why I've got an American accent. It's like, what the fuck? I don't know what I'm saying. (laughs) It's, it's, so, you know, I, 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 it was scrappy. Where'd you, where'd you go? You went to your sister's and didn't she help you out as well? No, not at that point. Not at that point. No, me and uh, two other kids who had recently been ejected all joined forces within a few weeks of kind of leaving and we had our, our house that we kind of was as much as we could support each other and look after each other and explore the world together but yeah no my sister and my older brother chris are hugely um, important in getting some of our younger brothers and sisters yeah. out of the group and and i think what's nice about the fact that we have got such a huge age range is us older ones because i'm there's 12 of us and i'm number six so there's the the, the top six and the, the bottom six, if you like, or however you want to divide it. But we were able to, by the time the younger ones were getting kicked out, which essentially we all ended up getting kicked out for something, we were able to catch them when they came out and nice. put them through school and like look after them and stuff like that. The, the things that really are a privilege to be able to to do. Like it's such a cliche everyone takes for granted until mm-hmm. you, probably until they hear this. Then you've decided once you've been out for a while, you've decided to make a documentary. Yeah. Let's just let's just join things up and, yeah, sure. and join it back to because it's a crazy story, isn't it? What like how, like what led you to make this documentary? Yeah. So tell us about that and then what the documentary is about. Okay, so um, I think I touched on it earlier when I was like twenty seven years old and having nightmares and having you know. Literally, I would close my eyes and I'd be straight back in that group. And as I said, I'd, I'd done everything I could to get as far away as I could mm. from being that cult kid. But it just was coming back and just being like, nah, here I am. I couldn't sleep and I started writing stories about growing up in the Children of God. But like meant to be, they were meant to be funny. It was like pure lols. <laughs> which clearly it's not but at the time i was like this will be hilarious this will be great yeah this will be really it's great comedy great. Yeah, exactly brilliant well i mean there is so much comedic value that you can pull out of cults there really is but it wasn't the time and it wasn't the way to process my childhood that's for sure it was too soon maybe now yeah yeah um but there were, i kept coming back to the story of walter 
which you know, the the man, the Guardian journalist who came in and asked me that question. And I um, I was like, do you know what I'm going to do? I th- th- and I didn't think to myself this will be the beginning of my process because I was 27 and you wouldn't think that. Well, I didn't think that at that age anyway. But so I want to track this guy down, this, this journalist down, and I want to say thank you because he had such a profound effect on me. And he really mm. was the beginning of that crack in the wall that I took. The about. journalist that came into, yeah. your, into the yeah, Children the journalist, of God. The first journalist who came to the Children of God and who asked me, what do you want to be when you grow up? I thought, I'm going to track him down. I'm going to say thank you. And I looked into him and I found out who the religious correspondent was at that time. And then, again, you that there is a chapter on this in my book where I have dinner with some of my friends and I'm saying, this is the guy that I think it is. I think it's this guy, Walter Schwartz. And one of my friends says, holy fuck, Walter Schwartz is Zach's dad. And Zach was a guy that I not only dated, but had been a friend of mine for five years. And I find out that this guy who is, you know, uh, met in a nightclub, but I'll leave it at that. <laughs> um, dated him for a while. <laughs> dated him for a while. Became my friend. His father was the man that had come to our cult when I was 11 years old, which is just, I mean, and it was this real push to be like, okay, something's happening here. Like something which is outside of the realms of what I'm, what I can control. And believe me, I'm not a magical thinker, but it gave me that kind of feeling of like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm looking in the right place. I'm doing the right thing. I was at his house that weekend and it was in, in, an incredible moment to meet up with him again and just to see this man that I remembered and that I'd had all these dreams about. And I just, yeah, it was, it was so profound. But one of the things that happened was on that weekend, again, him being this you know, really deep thinking journalist, he said to me, you've had this upbringing that most of us will never experience. You've had this perspective on life, which is completely different. He said, I believe than your average person's and I'm wondering what you're going to do with it. And his wife, bless her, was like, she doesn't have to do anything with it. And I agree with that in some ways. Like if you're in trauma, you you don't have to do anything with it. You don't have to write a book or make a documentary or you definitely don't have to go and join 10 cults like I did. But what was interesting to me when he said that was it borrowed its way into my head and I was just like, what am I going to do with it? I have got a choice. I can either let it be the thing that keeps me up every single night and I have nightmares about and I pretend never happened or I can start to look at it. So instead of just wanting to look at it from like my perspective of like this wounded child and a fuck you mom and dad, Mm. I was like, actually, why don't I start looking at how other people have experienced this? Because that's something that I can start to process. And as you know, from reading the book, I didn't want to process my parents at that point because gross. I just wanted to know why. So, you know, the the long and short of it is I, I went to the States, I bought a truck and I started... You know, I'd heard about gonzo journalism, which sounded like a really great idea. You know, don't have a plan. Go and live the experience and write about it. If you've read the book, you'll know it was a terrible fucking idea. And I started joining these groups to experience it and to try and understand. And at the root of it all was, why did my parents do what they did? But during that journey, which was was the greatest adventure of my life, it really was. It went across 13 states of America. It took a total of four years. It was 10 different groups, everything from people who could channel like aliens to... Gabriel. Yeah, Gabriel, yes. Who could Gabriel, channel. one of my favorite yeah. characters in the book. Well, for the, all the wrong reasons. Yeah, I know, because who doesn't love a man who thinks they can heal you with their penis? Such I mean- a good pickup line. <laughs> And he would steal, steal people's wives by saying that the alien, that, what, what was that? He would steal people's wives by saying that it's okay because in a past life we've been lovers. 
And so it's like, well, perfect, great. Ideal. And, but, so he, so he was the only person within his group that was allowed to be polygamous. Everyone else had to be like one wife, but he could do whatever he wanted. This man thought that he'd been like Abraham Lincoln. He thought he'd been like Alexander Gandhi, the Great, Alexander the Great, like William Wallace. Will, exactly. Oh, you've got such a good memory. But he literally, I mean, what, what a legend in some ways. Like, <laughs> yeah. I mean, to be able to pull that off yeah, and convince people, exactly. And he'll channel an alien for you for like a thousand dollars. Like, I mean, it's just, a, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's an entrepreneurial um, way of being. From everything from cosmologists to like the, to Armageddonists and beyond going into those groups i mean it taught me so much about myself to begin with taught me so much about why people join which i really needed to understand like you know i i had come at it from this perspective of like a kid who was raised in it what i didn't realize until joining all of those groups that actually what's at the basis of people joining cults is a very very basic set of human needs that we all carry with us the you know, need for belonging, the need to find our people, the need to have a purpose, the need to feel, you know, a sense of like, why are we, why are we on this planet? And then tie into that all the things like, I don't know, I don't have to pay my bills anymore. I don't have to worry about my career. I don't know, I have to, have to worry about my friendship group. All those things that we probably worried about our entire lives are taken away in an instant. So I can understand now, like the, the, the reasons that adults join but my kind of big conflict of the book has always been and and the journey and everything else has always been if you're an adult you have the absolute right to believe whatever you want until it starts to butt up against the human rights of a child because the kids are the innocent passengers Mm. within all of these experiences you know um they're the ones that are carried along for the ride and especially in groups where they start trying to put pressure or exploit the children, it's when you have to start interrogating those beliefs hard. It's like, absolutely believe in channeling aliens if it's coming from a place of compassion and empathy. There are tons of people that do that. But if it comes from a place of elitism or harm or damage or disconnection, that's when you start to worry about what a belief system is capable of. When you were on that trip, you also bumped into a former member of the Children of God, didn't you? Yeah, and this is a weird thing that I have like quite a few really bizarre coincidences within the within the book. Um, and one of them is that moment of the, the the guy Eli from my childhood who had made me and Maria fight. We I ended up bumping into him in in a bar in East LA of all places. Which you know, if you grow up in something like a a group and or maybe in any childhood scenario, and you have the perpetrators of your childhood. I imagine all of us have these moments of imagining them, you know, the face of them on someone else in the street or what we would do or say to them when we would bump into them or, you know, oh, I'm an adult now and I could do X and Y and Z, you know, replaying these Yeah, especially ideas. in a bar after you'd had a couple maybe. Mm, and yeah, and, um, and it all kind of came flooding back to me, that moment of, you know, fighting Maria and the moment of... Uh, uh, and remembering how he was. And then I saw this man standing in front of me that was just, you know, a, a kind of flaccid husk of who he used to be. And, you know, he wasn't a child anymore, but he could, I could see that, like, but I could also see that he had been a child when all these things were happening. Like, he was a product of his environment. And how desperately horrible is is that? And how lucky does it make me feel that, like, me and my brothers and sisters turned out the way that we did we're kind and we're generous and we love each other and we support each other and it's so unfortunate that some of the kids that were raised in this environment i mean it's a breeding ground if you think about it for psychopaths or sociopaths whichever the one is that yeah and in actuality you know he stood in front of me and I, i i didn't want to say all the things that i'd imagined you know i didn't want to like grab him by the scruff of the neck and say you fucking prick or whatever i i just saw him and i felt sad and sorry for him in and um 
But that's not how I would feel if I saw Jude. Very different. <laughs> You've never bumped into Jude? Never. I've imagined it for sure. But no, uh, it was weird having that moment. And it kind of sparked a whole bunch of conversations between me and Sophie, the girl I was on the journey with, about you know what can happen to kids who get raised in, in environments yeah. like that. And I think one of the real reasons why it can turn out how it has turned out for me and my family, my brothers and sisters, where we are good people kind people that haven't turned into like killing machines or abusers of mm. children is because we had each other yeah we had that 12 of you yeah but we had that we had each other to protect each other we had each other to go when look each other in the eye when shit was getting real and be like i see you and this is fucked up and i think that's one of the things that i will always that will always baffle me about children is that we can have this sense of right and wrong, even if we're raised in these weird and separate environments when stuff that's awful is happening to us. We can know, we know when a hug's for me and a hug's for you. You know, we know there's a en the energy behind stuff. And yeah, I'm, I am, and I know I say this in kind of like some of the opening pages of the book, I, I did have an extremely lucky childhood within that group, which is, which in itself is quite... Some, what, you, what you're saying there is probably not entirely accurate with like you having a lucky childhood but within that group more, more fortunate than a lot of other people yeah. my dad's not a pedophile exactly for example yeah. and i know that sounds like a ridiculous but statement that, that's not lucky that's like within the group within my group within it is. Group. that's yeah. like that's <laughs> that like, should be standard fuck, there's some poor people yeah. out there that are in some yeah. shit situations isn't there yeah but that you know that's something that me and my sisters we were like oh you know we are quite lucky because dad's not a pedophile and it's like we do have to check ourselves and be like okay that's not the the test of whether like of like a good or a bad person yeah. <laughs> like or like a lucky or unlucky but within our group the, the experiences that i put within my book are you know probably on much on the on the milder scale of stuff that happened to kids within yeah. within the children of God. You did catch up with your parents during the documentary, didn't you? Twice. Let's I talk. Did. Let's talk about the first time because oh, you want to take me back to my shame. I get the, it. Hundred <laughs> percent. The first time you caught up with them, you're going in there, and it's kind of what you talked about before when you're talking about Eli and the bar. You go, you're going in to interview them, and you've got a whole lot of shit you want to get off your chest. Yeah. It just didn't happen. Didn't happen. Yeah. I think what well, I, I think I was trying to be too clever, to be honest with you. There's like the one thing I, that I definitely kind of realized when writing the book is like you don't ever try and pretend to be the hero of situations where you definitely weren't. And within that scenario, I failed fucking miserably. And like I, I almost didn't write about it because I was so ashamed of it. I wanted to confront my parents and I had this idea of this like I was this strong warrior woman i was gonna right the wrongs of the past and that was put a them on trial gonna, yeah exactly and like i'm gonna show them and i'm a director now and and the minute i got into the room with them i was reduced to there it's like it was like handling snakes and the gaslighting was so strong and when they were sitting there with their kind of PR faces on, their like representative faces on. Because you were interviewing them. Yeah, so I was they were... interviewing them. So they were giving me their stock answers back. But I fell into it as well. And I found myself like, you know, kind of just agreeing with them and bumbling along. And inside of me, there's a kind of a kid kind of screaming to like to, to, to have a day of reckoning. I was just limp. And oh, God, like the way my dad's like sidestepping every question and how I'm try almost getting into it and I like start to ask about things like the Victor Camps and then I back out and then I, I can't really get there and it's like I, I sit there in front of my parents and I wanted them to look like cult leaders. I wanted them to look like lizards 
I wanted them to represent every fucked up thing that had ever happened within that group. And instead I had this like cardigan wearing old people talking about being on a fucking Hollywood diet so they can lose some of their, you know, geriatric weight. And I'm like, what the, this isn't, this is what? And it was almost like being in a physical gaslight. It floored me. And I think one of the main reasons that it floored me is because I really genuinely on some level thought that I'd forgiven them. And I sat in front of them hoping I could interview them from a place of kind of like grown up energy and compassion and empathy. And I absolutely was not there. I was not in a place of forgiveness with them at all. But I was trying to feign it. And within that, I missed the mark on everything. I didn't confront them. I didn't do myself justice. And I definitely let that 10-year-old girl who had had her voice taken from her, I let her down. And it floored me. Like that interview with them really did a number on me for a good couple of months. Until I could actually admit to myself, all right, I haven't forgiven shit. And then starting from a base level of honesty with myself, I'm not enlightened. I've already joined five or six cults by this point. I'm not enlightened. I haven't forgiven shit. And at least I can be honest with myself. And let's go from here. When you say you've joined five or six cults, you mean for the documentary? documentary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Not because I was searching. (laughs) Wanting to go back. (laughs) (laughs) Then two years later, let's just fast forward. Your parents reach out to you. You go and meet them um, and you're sitting on the beach. Yeah, so I, I, I realized as well by this point that really what I needed to do was not confront them about anything that had happened because actually the truth of the matter is I know what happened I lived through it I was there I didn't need some big expose where I got my parents to admit on tape what happened you all you need to do to see whether or not it you know was what it was is look on the internet and see everything that Moses David ever said look on the internet and see my parents on film on GMTV whatever else denying that any of that happened it's there it's Mm. all there the physical evidence is there I didn't need to get them saying I didn't even need them to apologize Mm. what I absolutely needed was to allow myself that child in me who had never had that chance to tell my parents how I experienced my childhood and just have them shut up and listen that's what I needed I didn't want an apology because what would that do now I didn't need them to say, yes, it did or didn't happen. I didn't need anything corroborated. What I needed was them to just listen to my experience. And I needed to speak my truth. And I know that's such an overused saying. And I, cringe, I cringe when I say it, but I absolutely needed that. And I think more than anything, it was like, there's a little girl in me that was gagging to have her say. So I stood on the beach and I basically said, this is how I experienced growing up in that group. This is what you put me through. And do not say a word. And that is the best I will ever get, I think, with my parents. And that was what I needed, was that sense of empowerment. Because an apology wouldn't, what would it mean at this Mm. point? And, And also, I think, and I go into this a little bit as well, but like, I think that forgiveness is one of these things that we bandy around so much as this idea of closure. Closure and forgiveness aren't mutually exclusive, I believe. I think that we, religion and society tell us that we have to forgive to have closure. I'm here to tell you that I have closure And there are some things that I absolutely have forgiven. And I can forgive my parents for things that they did to me specifically. Mm. But it's not for me to forgive people that have not protected a generation of kids and protected a group of exploitative predators. That's not for me to forgive. That's not my place to forgive. If my parents wanted the forgiveness of that generation, 
of kids that grew up in the children of God, then they can, you know, issue a statement saying that what they say, they're sorry for what they said on their behalf, not mine. It's big, it's this far bigger than me. This conversation, this topic, religion and human rights and children is way, way bigger than my story. So yes, I stood on the beach and I got what I needed from that. Can you remember what you said to them? I mean, it was a whole host of things that I, I said to them. But it was essentially just explaining to them, you know, what the experience of growing up in that group had done to me and how I'd felt at the time. And, you know, and, and then also just realizing that while my parents are still in this group and while they in some ways haven't been held accountable for the, some of the stuff that they did within that group, the reality is they, they pay the price every single day for being within that group. They pay, you know, they pay the price of not having their children in their lives. Some of the most brilliant, excellent people that I know they've created and they don't have that relationship with them. You know, they've chosen the group over us and that is part of their accountability, I suppose, and part of their, yeah. What did they say? I mean, to be honest with you, I didn't really want them to say anything. I did request that they stay silent because I, in a way I didn't want the magic kind of broken of what I was trying to do. Well, you did 11 months, so I mean, yeah, yeah, a couple of minutes for them to hear you out. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, and um, I and I do think that, you know, there was a, a point where my mum did say that she was sorry. But the thing is, you know, she said she's sorry before and that's that's absolutely fine. But I think that that wasn't as important as being able to just have them listen to what, you know, and have to have, have my have my peace. I think for anybody, whatever your childhood, if you were to try and confront your parents about the things that went wrong in it, it's a really difficult thing to do because you'll look at two people or one person, or whatever, like whatever your situation is, you look at the people that gave you life and that raised you and that also potentially caused you more hurt than anyone else. And that was my experience. These people called me, caused me more hurt than anyone else. You know, I was listening to a Lil Sims song the other day where she describes her dad as being her first heartbreak. And I was like, fuck, that's so true. And it's so true for so many of us. And that's one of the things I hope that people can actually take from that kind of chapter. You know, whatever your upbringing is, if you are left with these feelings of like complete confusion over how you how you experience your relationship with your parents, I think it's pretty normal. <laughs> yeah, your outlook is and the way that you articulate your your whole story is incredible, and like it's just so it's so mind blowing to get an insight into into that life and and the way that you've told the story throughout your book. It's amazing. And we've only really just scratched the surface because there's so much other stuff in the book, so many other stories, uh, so many parts of the documentary that you film when you go into these other cults as well. It's exciting. Um, it's funny in some parts, um, weirdly. Um, <laughs> Thank you for saying that. <laughs> yeah. Um, if anyone wants to sort of know more about the book, it's, it's called Cult Following. Um, it's out now and it's also being made into a series, isn't That's it? That's right, which is bananas. Imagine being a kid growing up without television and then dakota johnson's playing you in a tv series just drop that like just just drop that name in there dakota johnson dakota johnson and riley keogh are playing me and sophie who's my partner in crime in the 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 two of us are ones in the truck driving around the states but yeah i yeah i've met her only over skype to discuss it she read the book she loved it and um yeah they're turning it into a a, like a limited series with the two of them and Riley Keough if you don't know who she is is Elvis Presley's granddaughter just as another little name drop fuck off (laughs) Jesus look her up she's phenomenal 
Oh my gosh. Well done. Well done. Bexie Cameron, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. And thank you very much for listening. Don't forget to give us a review. If you like Bexie, which I'm sure you did, let us know what you think. And we'll be back again next week. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.